0: So, hello. Welcome to a, a new episode of the Intangible Podcast. I'm joined today with Professor Gil J. Stein. And um, we're actually, this is the first podcast that we're doing in person for the Intangible Podcast. We are currently at the Institute for the Study of Ancient Cultures, or the Oriental Institute. And could you please introduce yourself a little bit, Professor Stein?
1: Oh, sure. Well, thanks for having me. Um, my name is Gil Stein. I'm an Archaeologist and I specialize in the ancient Middle East, um, you know, mainly the areas of um, Turkey, uh, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. And I'm interested in understanding the beginnings of urbanism and uh, the origins of state societies. I'm also interested in studying ancient colonial networks and colonial contact and also just the economic organization of uh, ancient complex societies. I have a second um, half of my persona, which is that I've also become very interested and active in the preservation of cultural heritage, especially in the Middle East, but worldwide as well in, you know, Central Asia, the Americas, around the world. And as part of that, I set up the University of Chicago Center for Cultural Heritage Preservation.
0: Yeah. So a question i like to ask everyone in the podcast is what just, what inspired you to enter the field of preservation, but also archaeology in general?
1: My interest in preservation, cultural heritage preservation, grew out of my interest in archaeology. And I first became interested in archaeology when I was around 11 years old. And my parents got me this great book called God's Graves and Scholars. And I read it and it just opened up an entire world for me because the book was about the origins of archaeology. And so it had big chapters about the uh, rediscovery of Egypt and the time of Napoleon. And then especially it focused a lot about Heinrich Schliemann and the discovery of um, of Mycenae and uh, the famous gold, hammered gold death mask of Agamemnon that's in the National Museum in Athens. And especially, of course, uh, his discovery of Troy that nobody believed any of these places were actually historical. So he took them out of myth into... Reality. Yeah. It also talked about Arthur Evans and the discovery of Minoan civilization, mm-hmm. the early uh, explorers of the Maya. Yeah. And um, uh, so it was just a really well-written, really clear book. And even though I was only 11, you know, I could understand it. Yeah. And I thought, this is so interesting as a way to find out about our history, even when there isn't even writing to serve as your guide. So my interest in that just kept growing, mm-hmm. and um, in college I majored in archaeology, and I got to go on a Smithsonian excavation, mm-hmm. and uh, then I, my interest became more and more centered on the Mesopotamian world, because Mesopotamia is, of course, where the world's first cities developed, the, the origins of writing, the invention of the wheel, the world's first bureaucracy, although maybe that's not something to be proud of, but uh, uh, the first kings, the, first, the origins of kingship, all centered on Mesopotamia. So I just really wanted to become an archeologist of Mesopotamia and understand those origins, the, uh, where everything that we define as civilization, where that comes from.
0: Yeah, that's really that's really, really interesting. And I like what you said from myth to reality, right? That that's that's a really cool thing about about like archaeology and just preservation, just history in general brings some really cool and things that we might have thought were myths. It bring it brings that to reality. And now moving to the present, could you talk a little bit about your work at the University of Chicago and as the director of the Chicago Center for Cultural Heritage Preservation?
1: At Chicago, I've been doing excavations in the Middle East. Um, In Turkey, I excavated um, this site on the Euphrates River. Uh, That's one of the earliest known uh, colonies ever founded um, by the first Mesopotamian states. As soon as they, they had developed state societies ruled by kings, they started sending out colonies to get raw materials from the neighboring areas. So they went all the way up the Euphrates River into the mountains of Turkey to get copper and lumber and semi-precious stones and things like that. I also worked in Syria um, at a site called Tel Zaydan, also on the Euphrates, Mm. which goes back to even before the first um, urban civilization called the Uruk civilization in Mesopotamia. And before it, there was... Uh, the beginnings of the first life in towns in what's called the Ubaid period. And so Tel Zedan was a way to study the Ubaid period. That site in Turkey, Haji Nebi, was a way to study the Uruk period. And I've also worked at other sites as well. And now I'm working in northeastern Iraq at an Ubaid period site um, called Suresha in uh, on the plain of Erbil in northeastern Iraq, in the Kurdish part of northeastern Iraq. So, I I worked in basically three different countries of the Mesopotamian world. Um, while I was working in uh, uh, in that area, the uh, U.S. invasion of Iraq took place in two thousand and three, and as part of the uh capture of baghdad there was this period of anarchy when the national museum of baghdad was uh looted and the it was some of the greatest treasures of mesopotamian civilization were stolen and i'll never forget i was at an archaeological conference actually when the news came through about the looting of the museum and i remember standing there just dumbstruck thinking geez, we have to do something about this. Yeah. And archaeologists can't just claim to be objective, apolitical scientists or social scientists or humanists, whatever. We can't claim to be apolitical anymore. That if we don't do something very, very actively and apply our knowledge and our expertise and our uh, our deep familiarity with the different cultures in these conflict zones that our data, all our data will disappear very, very rapidly if we don't take very active steps now. And as part of that commitment, I started uh, working in cultural heritage preservation in the other particularly tragic area of loss, which is Afghanistan that Afghanistan was cursed by 40 years of nonstop war. Yeah. From the time of the Soviet invasion in 1979, for 10 years of Soviet occupation and Mujahideen uh, rebels trying to oust them and eventually the Afghans won. Yeah. And they, the Afghans claim that they won the Cold War for the world because yeah. the Russians, the Soviets withdrew and then the Soviet Union collapsed within two years. Yeah. And as part of uh, the civil war that took place as soon as the Soviets left, the different uh, resistance groups started fighting each other. And one group in particular, the Taliban, took over. Mm -hmm. And the Taliban in 2001 are infamous around the world for having blown up these monumental standing Buddhas in the Bamiyan Valley in the mountains of Afghanistan, in the Hindu Kush Mountains, and the world begged them not to do it. Even Islamic scholars, the foremost Islamic scholars from Mm -hmm. Al-Azhar University in Cairo, a delegation went to the Taliban and said, please don't do this. Afghanistan has been a Muslim country for more than a thousand years, and the first Muslims who conquered it, they saw these giant 150 foot tall statues, Mm -hmm. carved stone statues of the Buddha, Uh, and, these earliest Muslim conquerors respected those statues and they did not mm-hmm. destroy them. And they, uh, the scholars from al-Azhar urged the Taliban, please don't do this. The Taliban said, no, we're going to do it anyway because they are idols and we have to fight idolatry. At the same time, we're in the run-up to uh, the several, three months before they blew up the Bamiyan Buddhas. I believe that was in March 2001. The Taliban also systematically worked through the National Museum of Afghanistan and destroyed something like 2,500 sculptures from all different time periods. They sledgehammered them into pieces. And you have to understand about the National Museum of Afghanistan that Afghanistan is often called the crossroads of Asia. And it's a place where So many different civilizations met and interacted and all kinds of new forms developed from that interaction. And the remnants of the traces of all of these civilizations, going back minimally to the Bronze Age and also back into the Paleolithic, all of these civilizations left traces that are very, very important and they are important not just to Afghanistan but to the world at large. So, for instance, the easternmost colonies that Alexander the Great founded and his Hellenistic successors like uh, um, Seleucus um, or uh, his his um, his sons uh, those are the, the it's the easternmost. Uh, conquest of Alexander, he barely got out of Afghanistan alive. He sort of married Roxana, declared victory, and said, I'm going to India. And he just barely made it out alive. But his influence was very, very lasting on Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. and it led to the formation of entirely new art styles that fused Hellenistic art and later Roman art with South Asian Indian art into what's called the Gandharan art style. So the, the, that influence was huge. The uh, Greek alphabet was used to write the Bactrian language, the local Afghan Bactrian language. So there's a very deep Hellenistic, uh, Hellenic influence on Afghanistan, but also many other civilizations, India, Central Asia, Iran, China, all of them converged in interacting with Afghanistan. And the National Museum of Afghanistan is the place that has the repository for all these masterpieces of art and archaeology. So during the Civil War, when the, um, the the Civil War through which the Taliban came to power, uh, the the museum was rocketed, it was burned, it was looted, and The uh, former director of the National Museum of Afghanistan estimates that something like 70% of their holdings were looted or destroyed, and 90% of their records were destroyed. So it's impossible to to exaggerate the magnitude of that destruction Mm -hmm. and then to have that damage during the the Afghan civil war added to by the Taliban, the victorious Taliban, then smashing these thousands of sculptures, the entire museum was just devastated. So I was working um, with, with the support of the U.S. State Department and their embassy in Kabul. They uh, funded a number of grants. We had four grants in Afghanistan to preserve different aspects of Afghan heritage, both tangible and intangible heritage. On the tangible side, one of the things that... Uh, the the way we started to work in that country was that we were asked to do an inventory of the museum, the first ever computer inventory of the museum. They estimated 70% of their holdings were lost, but no one knew exactly how many objects were in the museum to begin with. Mm-hmm. So we did a... Um, a complete inventory of every object in that museum on um, a commercially available uh, database that anyone in the world could basically buy or now, you know, rent um, called FileMaker Pro. So it was an appropriate technology. We had it work just within an internal network in the museum. So you didn't even need um, connection to the internet to be able to do it, to do the inventory. And um, you could work on a laptop, so you didn't even need electricity in the building to yeah. be able to do the 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 inventory. So we, we tried to design the inventory to be um, fully bilingual in both Dari, which is like Persian. It's one of the two main languages of Afghanistan, Dari and Pashto. So we did our... Inventory in English and dari mm-hmm. and we took photographs of everything we described everything and recorded it in, um, in uh, both languages and we did the entire thing and it took years it took five six seven years to, to com- well about six or seven years to complete the uh, the inventory and because that inventory uh, was done, it meant that even if the objects were destroyed afterwards, mm-hmm. a record would exist. And I call that preservation through documentation. Yeah. So that inventory was the first major project that we did um, to help the National Museum. We also trained their curators and their conservators so that when our grant was over and we went home, that they would have all the skills that they needed to do their jobs in a way that's consistent with best practices for museums around the world. The second project that um, we did was called the Afghan Heritage Mapping Project, and this one I think is really cool, that the idea was to try to document, to discover and Map the location of every archaeological site in Afghanistan Mm -hmm. that you can see in satellite imagery, Mm -hmm. okay? Because Afghanistan was such a dangerous conflict zone, you couldn't really go out into the countryside and look for sites. It just wasn't going to work. A small number of sites, I say small, but I mean about 1,200 sites had already been either excavated or found by survey, and were recorded in what's called the Archaeological Gazetteer of Afghanistan. It's a very important uh, resource. But it turns out there are tens of thousands more sites in the country.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we worked our way through thousands of um, satellite images in different, in different formats. Um, some are very, very precise some are go all the way back to the early 70s when there was a spy satellite program called Corona that took images of Afghanistan and those are really valuable because they show you what the landscape looked like before it had been really damaged by modern agriculture and things like that so the resolution wasn't great of the images but the information in them was unique and is gone now you know you can't you can't see many of those things anymore So we found thousands of sites, but we realized we were running out of time and there was still so much of Afghanistan to cover. So we worked with the uh, Research Computing Center at the University of Chicago to develop an artificial intelligence, uh, deep learning model that uses this uh, principle called convolutional neural networks to teach the computer how to recognize sites. So you give the computer a, a teaching set, like we'd identified thousands of sites already, so we could tell the computer these are two thousand cases of we know this this thing this feature on the landscape is a site, and then we gave him the computer thousands of examples of this is not a site, so the computer made its first estimate way, its yeah. first sort of neural map of how to recognize the site wow. and then we kept correcting it when you know the mistakes uh, that the computer made and of course initially there were lots and lots of mistakes but the computer got better and better and better yeah. at it with each iteration so in the end it was identifying sites that even when we were physically looking at the images we had missed yeah. the computer was finding them
0: it's really
1: innovative. It was so cool. And um, yeah. it, it, it's really uh, something that a number of people have started to use very effectively. You know, we weren't the first, but we, we realized the potential of this technology. So now we've combined mm-hmm. the, uh, the sites identified by the deep learning model with the thousands of sites that our own data analysts had identified just by visual examination yeah of the uh, images, and now we we are putting together this enormous uh, GIS database of every archaeological site in Afghanistan that we knew of, either from excavations or from surveys in this gazetteer or from our own uh, work, and it's not going to be the definitive map, because we don't have images of the entire country, but we have images of most of the country. So I'm really excited by that, and that's something that we're continuing to work on. And as a key part of our project, we also focused on looking for evidence of looting of archaeological sites and has the looting stopped or are there places where the looting is still continuing? And so because we had time series images where... Uh, like uh, Digital Globe uh, images done over several, you know, over years, we're able to see at this site, looting seems to have begun in this year and then it stopped in this year mm-hmm. or, wait a minute, those are new looters' pits that weren't there last time yeah. uh, in the earlier image so we were able to see when new looting was taking place and we worked wow. on this um up until the end of our grant in 2022. So that was the second big project that we did. Third one was um, uh, our Hada sculptural project where we were uh, trying to uh, reassemble, conserve and reassemble uh, as many as possible these thousands of sculptures that were smashed up by the Taliban. And the fourth project was very different and I'm really happy with it. It was a project of museum outreach where the idea was high school kids in Afghanistan really weren't learning about their own civilizational history, or that had just entered into the curriculum about two years before the collapse of the Ghani government. And what our grant asked us to do was to do outreach at, um, to high school students in creative new ways. So we developed a program where we made uh, 3D printed replicas of like about 20 or 30 uh, objects from the National Museum and we prepared a kind of a curriculum with uh, PowerPoint presentations and discussions. And we went out to uh, Kabul of course as the, the largest city yeah. in Afghanistan but also to five other cities around Afghanistan. We went to uh, Kandahar, we went to Jalalabad in, in both in southern Afghanistan uh, and then we also went to uh, Herat and Bamiyan and Mazar Sharif so we we reached uh, thousands of high school students in all those areas with in person programming and we also did these programs at orphanages and we made sure we we, we spoke to both boys schools and girls schools and in doing this program and it was very successful and we did it using uh working with um using the resources we had these replicas of the museum and also uh working with um, local afghan instructors whom we trained to teach the course so Mm -hmm. They weren't seeing foreign faces in front of each class. Yeah. They were seeing their fellow Afghans. Uh, no. And we, you have to understand that Afghanistan is a very, very diverse country with many different ethnic groups. And we made sure that we were reaching the cities that were the homes of these different ethnic groups. And as part of teaching the civilizational history of Afghanistan, we also focused on getting them to understand that the National Museum of Afghanistan is the repository where all of the most important remains of these different civilizations are preserved and that the museum belongs to the Afghan people and they can go to the museum and see those things on their own. And if they can't go, they can at least learn about it remotely yeah. from from these in-school programs that we did. And those were the, the four main big projects that we did in Afghanistan and they they, as you can see they cover things from objects to archaeological sites to outreach to people and intangible heritage. What we were very interested and committed to conveying to these students was that they should know their history they should be very proud of it and they should feel some kind of ownership of it Mm -hmm. through uh their ability to to uh connect with the national museum of afghanistan and as part of that that they should know to preserve the cultural heritage in their own areas yeah where they live
0: your work is, is amazing extremely important and all that will be linked in the description of the podcast for people to hopefully uh Look, view it more I know a lot of people will, it's very interesting I'll share the YouTube videos as well and I think what you what you did and you and your team did in Afghanistan with the just the diversity of all the projects right you 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 talked about it just how you folks from education to um, objects and tangible and intangible I think that's really important and I'm sure you created a, a very amazing base for these students and just Afghanistan in general to hopefully succeed with preservation efforts in the future and, and i mean going back to what you said a little bit earlier this you mentioned it documentation through pre- preservation through documentation right so th- that's i think that's one of my favorite things that you said and i really wanted you also talked about talked about it a little bit before we started the podcast i was just wondering if you could expand on that because i think that's something really really important that that you've said today
1: When we talk about heritage, most people think of what is considered tangible heritage, heritage you can actually physically see and touch. But of course, just from the title of your podcast, you're trying to get people to understand that heritage is not just tangible objects or monuments, but it's also intangible uh, things like traditional crafts or knowledge, like weaving or wood carving or pottery making or dance or um, like myths, oral
0: myths. History, right? yeah.
1: Yes. So when you think about it, that gets to the the combination of the tangible and the intangible. That's the very heart of what cultural heritage is, because. You can think of cultural heritage as this body of knowledge and practices that are shared by a group of people and the the key elements of that shared knowledge that define a group as a culture. And so that's at its most basic. That's why cultural heritage is important because it defines who we are. And if that knowledge is lost or destroyed, then you go from being a cohesive culture and society to just being a bunch of people milling around. And that loss, we we think that knowledge is cumulative, that just each generation adds to it. But in fact, knowledge can very easily be lost and cultures, entire cultures can disappear whether or not the people are killed off or die off. But just as a um, a, a culture, as a living social entity that uh, is rich and where people pass along this knowledge to their children just by singing songs to them. Language, I should have mentioned that right away, language is perhaps the single most important aspect of intangible cultural heritage. How else can you even tell a myth, tell a story, tell the history of Mm -hmm. your ancestors to your kids or your relatives or friends? How can you even pass that along if you don't have language? So languages are dying off at a frightening uh, rate as our world becomes more globalized and with international... Uh, media. Yeah. So, this heritage, the tangible and intangible, is fragile. And I would say you should think about cultural heritage as a non renewable resource like petroleum, that once it's gone, it's gone forever. You will never get it back. Yeah. And that's why it's so important because it defines who we are and it's fragile and it can be lost. But at the same time, there are things that we can do to try to preserve it. And the last thing I want to say about this is um, when I've been talking about Afghanistan and I talked about the looting of the Baghdad Museum, and we're and many people are were just deeply moved and disturbed by the um, organization, the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq, or often called ISIS. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, their Arabic name is Daesh, um, many people were terribly disturbed and, and motivated to action by the fact that Daesh was destroying ancient cultural heritage. So heritage destruction in wartime gets all the headlines, but in fact, far greater damage to cultural heritage occurs during peacetime through the expansion of human population, the expansion of cities that just cover up and destroy whatever was there in that site, in Mm -hmm. that place beforehand, and agricultural intensification connected with feeding these cities and their populations. Mm -hmm. So enormous amounts of cultural heritage are being destroyed everywhere in peacetime. So it's not just about war. And that it's pervasive and that's why everyone needs to be concerned with protecting heritage Mm -hmm. because it's not just in war zones it's here in the united states it's in europe it's everywhere it's under assault from this huge increase in human population Mm -hmm. even in peacetime
0: wow yeah thank you thank you so much that's that's an amazing answer to that question that was a great thought thank you and I, I want to ask you one last question before we wrap up the podcast, and this is a much more general question. So what do you think that the average person like like me or a high or even a high schooler, but it doesn't just generally just have to be a high schooler in general, just the average person in the United States and Europe and Afghanistan, what do you think they can do to uh, um, help preserve cultural heritage and also become more in touch with their own cultural heritage?
1: That's a that's a great question. I think it turns out that there's a lot that we as citizens of our country, our, our our culture, there's a lot that we can do. The first is to learn about our heritage and to value it. And we can learn about it by going to museums, by reading, by, you know, watching video content about it. In, those are all ways to learn about the heritage and learn about its importance. But we can also be active in uh, helping to develop laws that will protect heritage, but it's not enough to just have laws on the book. You have to enforce those laws. Yeah. Then we also have to preserve heritage by training people to uh, work to protect heritage in governments, not just in our own country, but we have an obligation to help the governments of other countries to have trained professionals who can steward this heritage. I think stewardship is a really good concept that uh, we're not just doing this for ourselves. We're doing it for our children and for generations to come. And if it's gone it'll be gone forever. So those kinds of obligations of citizenship are really, really important. And it can it's something that everyone can get involved in, yeah. that almost every community is going to have some part of that community that is, whose heritage is at risk, whether it's Buildings from the 19th century or from the colonial times in the United States mm-hmm. that are at risk of just being torn down to put up some modern architecture, mm-hmm. that we can work to preserve heritage. And I don't mean every single old thing is necessarily wonderful and valuable, but we all know what kinds of buildings are real touchstones for us, things that we look at it and say, yes. That makes me think about an important part of my history and my culture, and it defines who I am as an American, and those places, those buildings, uh, they need to be preserved. I was fortunate enough to visit um, the Little Bighorn Battlefield in Montana, and I realized my God, this has to be protected. That's why it's a national park. And God forbid that someone would just plow it over and, and turn this very, very significant place in our history into, you know, a meatpacking plant or something, yeah, yeah. something like that. So that's one example. But in our own communities, there can be a building around the corner from you that was very, very... Important in, in our in our history, I, I saw the the house in Bonn where Beethoven was born. And yeah. would you really want to tear that down to put up the cult the corporate headquarters of some telecom com- yeah. company? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. don't do it. <laughs> um, so we can be active by valuing the things that make us who we are. And that's not just tangible things, but it's intangible things. Yeah. It's like collecting oral histories of our parents and our grandparents. We're a nation of immigrants, all yeah. of us, whether it was Native Americans who came over across the Bering Straits or yeah. people who came from all over the world to this yeah. country. And in the United States, it's, it's a melting pot of cultures, but at the same time, we value our diversity we value them the tapestry, this this incredibly variegated multicolored tapestry of who we are, and that's worth preserving, knowing your own history and talking to your grandparents and say, "Can you tell me the story of how you came to?" America. Yeah. That's all valuable. That's all cultural heritage. Every one of those things are things where individual citizens can make a difference. Yeah,
0: As you say, we value our history, right? We value where we came from.
1: Yeah. We should.
0: We should. Exactly. We should. And, well, thank you so much. This has been a very eye-opening uh, podcast, an episode on the podcast, and I'll, I'll be sure to share all the links from your work in the description of this podcast so hopefully the listeners can um, view those. And I mean, I can't thank you enough. This has been an amazing episode on the podcast. So thank you so much.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. you.